This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, the director of CT Media. With me, as always, is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. Today, we're going to be talking about the revival at Asbury, what's happened there, what's happening now, and the world that's watching. We're going to talk about the launch of Nikki Haley's presidential campaign. Does this tell us anything about the future of the Republican Party or the conservative movement? And then we're going to be joined by Jesse Eubanks, host of the Enneacast and author of a new book called How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. Stay with us. So Asbury University is in the news. They're a small Christian school in Wilmore, Kentucky. About a week ago Wednesday, after a chapel service, some students stuck around to continue to pray together and to sing a few songs. It was really just a handful of them. It's been almost 10 days now, and it's still going. They're gathering in the chapel. They're praying. They're singing. Occasionally, people are getting up on stage to share a word or a testimony. It's pretty low-key. But it's by all accounts of people who've been in the room, it's this very sort of intense and powerful experience. And I actually went down there yesterday. Wilmore, it's about an hour and a half away from me. It's a small town. There's only, I think, about 1,500 students in the school. But when you pull up to the campus, there's a line up to the chapel that was at least two football fields long, you know, three or four people wide, lined up at two different sets of doors to get into this chapel. One of our producers, TJ, went with me. We were just processing a lot as we went, and it was an indescribable atmosphere. I didn't actually even get into the room because it would have taken us hours to wait in the lines to to do so. But we spoke to several people. I spoke in particular to one professor who was there as things unfolded on those first few days. You know, he said it was nothing out of the ordinary. It was just a normal chapel service. And then he got a text a few hours later saying, hey, something is happening here. People haven't left yet. They're still praying. And several things struck me as really remarkable. And one of them was just the lack of words, um, the lack of language that this person who's has no lack of words in, as a communicator, as a teacher, struggled to find words to describe what was going on, as many of the students who have been a part of this have. That there's just this very clear sense from all of them that I can't put my finger on it, but God is in this place. So we, you know, we showed up first. We ended up walking into a chapel that was right across the street that's, that's become an overflow site for the main chapel. And it was interesting. It was it was surprising. You walked into that chapel and it was this very noisy, chatty environment. It was very touristy. So many people have come in from out of town. And so the the video of what's taking place in the main chapel across the street is playing on the screen and it's there's music playing and it's very sort of quiet over there. And then in this main chapel, there may be a hundred people sitting kind of scattered, but like I said, it was it was noisy. People were just having conversations. Oh, and 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 The other thing was that there were people taking selfies inside that chapel or standing on the sidewalk outside with the other one in the background. Of course. So then we went to the second chapel, which was a little more out of the way. And this one, we were greeted at the door by somebody, perhaps a teacher, perhaps a a graduate student there. But she was very friendly, asked, you know, if she could do anything for us or pray for us or just made herself available and said, you know, so anyway, we get inside there and that one was completely different atmosphere. It was dead quiet, small crowd, but very serious, very weighty, kind of a, a sense of longing, a hauntedness in the room that was very profound. A little while after that, I spoke with a freshman at Asbury named Lindsay Melhorn, and I asked her how all of this came about. There are so many people that are wrestling with things and holding on to so many chains and burdens, and we knew that God was stirring something, and we didn't know what. So a couple of my friends said, hey, Lindsay, we need to be praying in Hughes just before the day starts, 7.30 in the morning, just pray over this empty chapel that God will use it for his glory however he pleases. And I think that was Monday of the week that this started. This started on Wednesday. 
funnily enough, Lindsay had actually been a part of those prayer gatherings, but wasn't actually at the chapel service that morning. I spoke to someone who was, though, and he described a pretty ordinary service. Asbury's not a Pentecostal or charismatic community, so nothing in the actual gathering would have made you think anything out of the ordinary was taking place. But after the service, a handful of people were gathering at the altar, asking for prayer. Some of the musicians wanted to continue singing, so people just stuck around. And the pastor who preached that morning stuck around as well and was praying with students. Lindsay got a text about it a little later that day. And so I woke up, I'm like, oh man, it's, it's late. But I got a text right away, hey Lindsay, come to chapel. The, the worship is continuing and this revival we've been praying over, we think that God is starting something. We didn't know exactly what, but I stayed there and I just was immediately brought to tears at the genuine humility of everyone in the room that we were just, we were just all around just singing any song that came to mind. It would be one person starts a new song, one person starts another song, let's sing this, God has put this on my heart. And throughout the whole day, there would be more people streaming in, more people, and there was an email that said, come to Hughes Chapel. The Lord is present, and we want to worship his name. And that was from the administration? Yes. Wow, okay. An email to the whole campus. Um, And so some classes were still going on, but they realized soon enough that no one's coming to these classes. And so teachers were coming. Whole classes were being brought in. And it became a thing where it would be overnight and people would bring in their mattresses. People would bring in water and food and praying, God, how do you want us to serve? And it would be going out getting food. It would be going out and getting blankets and telling people about this. So what's it like if, I, if, if we were able to get in? Like, I, I don't think we're going to be able to get in. But if we were able to get in, what's it like in there right now? What's happening? What would it's, you see? I've been telling people the second you walk in, you just feel this overwhelming sense of peace hmm. and genuine just humility Mm. there are tons of people bowing at the altar there are tons of people crying on the floor and standing in the balcony with their hands reached up to god and just grasping for his love Mm. and so i feel like the presence of god in hughes is very special and when you walk in there you'll be able to tell immediately these people have the joy of the lord in their eyes Mm. these people are seeing again living again it was remarkable. I mean, you, like I said, you drive into town, there's traffic, there's buses arriving, there's Airstream trailers that have been set up in near parking lots because people just want to be close to this. And, you know, as we walked up, like, <laughs> I mean, it was funny, like we, we walked up on the scene and the first thing that really caught my eye was a, a group that was clustered on the sidewalk. Clearly they'd been sort of ushered off the campus by the campus security and they had megaphones and they were yelling, you know, sort of your standard, you know, repent and naming specific sins and that kind of thing. But then about 10 steps later, I find myself sort of bumping into a prominent megachurch pastor who, if I mentioned his name on the podcast, uh, which I didn't get permission to, I didn't think to, uh, but, but if I mentioned his name on the podcast, people would be like, oh, I know most people would know who this guy is, who'd just come to town to see it, I, I presume. And so, you know, it's got this incredible draw. And I have to say, Asbury is doing an amazing job of trying to protect the kids and protect it as an experience for them. There's police managing the crowds. You know, one thing Lindsay described is that she's one of the worship leaders in this chapel ministry, and they're guarding the stage. So someone tried to sort of rush the stage while she was there and get to a microphone or whatever. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is the students that, you know, they're really leading this. But you sense a fragility, and the professor we spoke to, you could feel a tension in him of the sense that this is a beautiful and a fragile thing. These kids are desperate for a sense of revival and a sense of meaning, and God has done something here. But man, the circus has come to town. You know, the story was featured on Tucker Carlson last night. Certain sort of revivalist online huckster types have talked about coming to town and tried to sort of attach their names to it. So there's really just no telling where it goes. And, you know, Lindsay had another thing she said that I thought was striking is she said, we feel like God gave this to us, but we don't want to be selfish with it. So we want to be hospitable and welcome people. But again, the ambivalence is very evident because nothing draws a crowd like a spectacle. And it isn't a spectacle in many ways because it's very quiet and it's about the things that revivals are about, repentance, humility. I mean, Lindsay used the word humility over and over. And yet, the world is descending on Wilmore, Kentucky right now. So who knows what comes next? Incredible. When you talk about the spectacle aspect of it, 
And uh, Tom McCall, who's a theologian at Asbury Seminary, had put up on uh, Facebook that a famous worship leader called and said, I'm available to come and lead worship. And Asbury said, no, the, the kids have it under control and said, you know, there are voyeurs and people, hangers on who are, who are going to want to show up. But at the same time, that's exactly what happened with the ministry of Jesus. You have people who are coming just to see the spectacle. And Jesus says, after the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, you're here for the bread, but I'm here with something genuine and with something real. So it shouldn't surprise us that when the Lord does some really unusual work, that you will have people who are going to want to kind of get touristy about it. That says nothing about the authenticity of the revival itself. No, I agree. I, I think it was interesting to me. I fight cynicism pretty hard around stories like this. Always have. You know, I grew up in a church that wasn't a charismatic church, but by virtue of circumstance, I found myself in the late 90s around a lot of the Vineyard USA stuff that was going on at the time, which was pretty charismatic. And saw fascinating and interesting things that some of which, like, even at the time, you you know, you roll your eyes at the holy barking and all, you know, that kind of stuff mm -hmm. that was happening. But then, you know, you saw people legitimately healed of serious disabilities and diseases and, and stuff that was inexplicable. And you also saw, and that was the stories that I was hearing, you also saw people just drawn to God in a moment of intimacy and presence that was extraordinary. And I, I think part of what this stirs for me is, you know, as somebody who was a worship leader and was involved in worship ministry in, in many ways, part of my skepticism comes from the fact that people are trying to manufacture this all the time. You're right. trying to manufacture it with technology, with certain certain way of preaching and communicating and, and driving your services and all the rest of it. And you can get certain kinds of responses by doing that. And yet you can't do this. That's right. And that's what makes this fascinating. And it's also what makes it feel sort of precious and fragile to me in ways that my heart is out for, for these kids as well, very much in the way that this professor I spoke to was like, you want this to remain a sacred space or a sacred experience, you know, a sacred memory. And you worry about, you know, I, I feel very worried about the circus coming to town and yeah. not so much for what the world is going to do with it or, or whatever, but again, for this community of students and, and teachers and what it's meant to them up to this point. Yeah, there's a novelist who says, uh, first comes the miracle, then come the souvenir mongers. <laughs> and that's, that's that's always going to be the case. And, and it's also the case, though, that we live in this especially cynical time. I was talking to uh, an atheist friend, never been part of any uh, religious faith, uh, the other day, who said, I just, I feel like you live in an enchanted world that I wish I could inhabit, but I just can't see it. It's almost like I'm spiritually colorblind. And uh, I heard from him uh, after these reports went out. He said, this just seems very strange to me. I don't know how to understand it. Well, that I have a category for. But then there's the Christian uh, cynicism, where the, the first reaction to anything is to blast it on social media. And you step back and you say, really? Is this what we're going to be cynical about? The fact that we have given up on the mm -hmm. fact that God might do exactly what he says he will do, which is to turn people in repentance and in prayer and in forgiveness of one another and those sorts of things. It's not just that the atheists are disenchanted and secularized. It's that in many cases, so are we. Mm -hmm. And so rather than seeing this sort of thing and test everything, as the Bible says, but hold fast to what is good, there's a way of just sort of filtering it all out as nonsense. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, you've all lived in, a friend of mine uh, on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, we're we were talking about this, and he said there's a cynicism seems to be the opposite of naivete, but it actually is itself naive because mm. you just then put everything in the category of manipulation and inauthenticity, and you end up missing the vulnerability that comes with something extraordinary, and it yeah. looks like that's what we're seeing here. I think the online chatter is a great 
point of reference for this because like one of the more infuriating comments that I saw was somebody who essentially said, I'll believe that there's a revival among white evangelicals when they repent of voting for Donald Trump. And I'm thinking about this 18, 19 year old, 20 year old students who've never voted in a presidential election. Never voted, right? yes. <laughs> yes. But it, it does, you know, it does tell you number one, how much politics has dominated our spiritual imaginations. Yeah. But number two, I think it also takes us away from being able to think reasonably and faithfully about what it means when God shows up, like what is most interesting for the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. Is the Holy Spirit primarily interested in catalyzing, you know, a political revival, which on both sides of the aisle, I think there are people who would say, well, that's what real revival is going to look like is when we get these things Mm -hmm. right. And there was not a hint of culture war in the air at this place. The Mm -hmm. stories were people struggling with depression, people struggling with addiction, people struggling with anxiety, suicidal ideation, um, chronic disease, like sins and then burdens and, and chronic pain and illness, like suffering in the body and in the heart and the soul. Like that is where the gospel is meeting people. And that is what's been so transformational. I mean, it's so far divorced from most of the way we talk about faith in the world right now, that it feels really, really foreign in a refreshing and and in a haunting kind of way. And it also, I think, shows us a little taste and a little sign of the fact that God often acts in these really disruptive ways that we can't map out. And so, I mean, for instance, we're always looking at trends of religious affiliation and and church attendance, and and those are all helpful up to a degree. But we can focus on it. We look at trends among uh, generations, what's important to Generation Z and what's important to the generation after that. But there's a sense in which we have to step back and say all of that is contingent because God can upend everything at any moment Mm -hmm. in ways that just really are not predictable in the same way in our own lives. I mean, Jesus tells us about the, the man who stores up all of his wealth and says, now that I have it, he doesn't know that he's going to die uh, that day. It also works the other way where sometimes we look around at the staleness and the numbness and we think, well, this is the way it's always going to be. And yet the Holy Spirit is alive. We tend to forget that. You had an interesting comment. We were texting about this earlier this week and you you made an interesting connection between this and some of the reaction that we saw to the He Gets Us ads that aired during the Super Bowl this uh, this previous Sunday. I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Well, it's a little bit of a different thing, but I think it it fits into the cynicism. I I remember saying to someone that was a colleague of mine in another place a long time ago, saying, you don't have a category between this is an abomination to be torn down and "Eh, this is kind of annoying. There's just no... (laughs) There's just no category between those two things for you. And it seems that we're in a time where the first question is, is this the way that I would design this evangelistic campaign or this way of introducing people to Jesus? And if the answer is no, then that means that it's Baalism. Rather than having the attitude that Jesus has, which is not very concerned about those things, And I think that we can say, maybe I wouldn't do it exactly the way they did it with this particular initiative or this particular, I mean, we we could say that about anything. I mean, there are all all sorts of things about the way that Billy Graham did his crusades that maybe I would do differently right up to the name crusade. (laughs) But I mean, mean, Billy Graham, God's, God's working through, can't you step back and say, I'm thankful to God that there's somebody who is seeking to bring the gospel and to bring, and in this case, with the He Gets Us campaign, somebody who's who's saying, I want to go to the Super Bowl and just introduce people to the Mm -hmm. person of Jesus Christ. And Mm -hmm. there's all these ways of saying, well, yes, but you didn't give a full theological sort of package. Yeah, it's not a full-throated evangelistic campaign. It's, mm-hmm. it's wanting to speak to very secularized people to say, maybe you should reconsider Jesus. So it's the, the equivalent of what all of us have done before with people we know when we've said, just read the Gospel of Mark for a little while and tell me what you think 
about this figure, Jesus Christ. And so yeah. that cynical reaction to everything, it, it's just so easy to infect us all. And to some degree, with good reason, as you mentioned, I mean, we have seen so much hucksterism and manipulation, all of those things. But the reaction to that can't be to assume that everything is in that category. Or we just become the kind of person who says, because I had a bad situation in a relationship, I'm never going to love anybody again. That's a dangerous place to be for for a person spiritually. Yeah, I had an interesting reaction to it as well, because people talked about it on other le- all kinds of levels. And there was this whole culture war narrative that you saw in the media at, at times yeah. in terms of connecting it to the donors and that, and that sort of thing. One of the threads of the conversation that was interesting was how much money went into these ads and where else it could have gone and all of this. And I, I don't know if I'm right. Maybe you can tell me if I'm right. But my initial reaction to that was, yeah, I mean, think about how many churches you could plant or other places that money could go. And then all of a sudden, I just found myself thinking about Jesus anointing at Bethany, right? Yeah. I think if this had been more directly a campaign with this really intense call to action, right, that was like, mm-hmm. bring, let me bring you to my product or whatever. Yeah. It would have struck me differently. But because of the way the ad was done with this very sort of elegant, understated, let me give you just a glimpse of who Jesus is. It felt to me almost like a, an act of worship. Jesus is this yeah. beautiful person that you didn't know. And because of that, the the anointing at Bethany struck me as like, this is a beautiful thing. Like, who are we to say what's a worthy gift or what's an, an exorbitant gift in that sense? And I'll, I'll tell you what scares me about the anointing at Bethany, which, of course, uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with this, it's the woman who comes and anoints Jesus's feet with these very expensive perfumes. What scares me about this is that my natural reaction to that, if I don't tell myself, okay, wait, here's here's the story and here are the players, is to think that Judas Iscariot makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and so it's, exactly. it's really scary that I say, okay, I, I, if I'm agreeing with Judas Iscariot, then something's wrong with me. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's the reason why it's included in the mm-hmm. gospel story is to say there's this way of very short-term thinking that, of course, you peel the layers mm-hmm. away and there are other motives involved with sure. Judas, but there are other motives involved with all of us. And so right. it's, it's really, right. I think, sobering. Yeah, and I think you can sort of pull the lens back on all of this. And there is this sense, I mean, to just go back to the Asbury story, there is this sense that Our approach to mission, our approach to ministry oftentimes is very sort of transactional, inputs and outputs, right? Yeah. And that that strikes me as very much the way that he gets this campaign has been judged too. And to me, the Asbury thing is such a refutation of that (laughs) because, again, there's no calculation for how, you know, this was not about getting the right recipe together so that God showed up. There's a history here. There's a story here. This is the fourth one of these kinds of revivals that's taken place on the campus. And that story inspired Faith and someone like Lindsay, who spoke to me and some of her friends to say, well, we want to see it again. Let's just pray. Let's pray and see what happens. You know, you can't calculate for that. The spirit blows where he wishes. So, all right, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. All right. uh, In the words of John Cleese, and now for something completely different, um, American (laughs) politics has been interesting lately. So to set this up, there's a thread that has connected 
politics on the left and right in the last few years that I feel like has become clearer and clearer. And that is this consensus that America is a pretty terrible place these days. On the right, there's this idea that the whole country is beholden to progressive ideology defined by quote unquote wokeness, sexual revolution, Marxism. You know, Donald Trump's inauguration speech, you know, famously talked about American carnage and what a wreck the place was. On the left, they come to a similar conclusion with a very different set of reasoning. America is defined by its legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and inequality. And the problem is actually the religious and moral conservatives and the lack of equality of outcome in our systems. And, and of course, much of that comes from the farthest fringe, but also because of the nature of our media environment, that stuff is broadcast in very loud ways. I think the whole ethos is actually summed up really well by a quote from former presidential candidate Jonah Ryan from Veep, who said, I love America, but it's time to face facts. This is a horrific country that is falling apart because it's full of people that are different from me. (laughs) So I mentioned all of that because earlier this week, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, announced that she's running for president. And what struck me about the announcement is that she has seemed to have done a 180 pivot on that tone. Now, she was not a Trump supporter, but then she eventually came around to supporting him after he secured the nomination. She served as the UN ambassador. She was one of many who was very harshly critical of Trump after January 6th and then walked that back within a couple of weeks later. She said she wasn't going to run if he ran, but he's running and now she's running. She's an interesting political character. She's a very popular governor in South Carolina. She famously took the Confederate flag down from the Capitol grounds. And in the campaign announcement, she's striking this very positive tone. She's very critical of the left, but she's also very much planting her flag as it's time for generational change, which clearly is a dig at Joe Biden, but is also Mm -hmm. very clearly a dig at Donald Trump. Russ, what do you make of it? Well, yes, she said that there should be mandatory cognitive tests for any candidate <laughs> over 75, which uh, is not it, two people are, are fitted, not subtle at all. Yeah. You know, I, I think that in watching that announcement, what struck me is how much has changed. I mean, there, there were several uh, friends of mine who said this is a 2015 sort of rollout in a very different time. So to see how much has changed uh, since then with that tone that you mentioned. And the question is, is there a place for that now? I actually think there's another question. And you sort of alluded to it. The question of who is Nikki Haley? And is she just whoever she thinks she needs to be? That's what she has to overcome precisely because of all of these back and forth sorts of evolutions that she's had. That will be the question. And I think what's interesting is that maybe the biggest threat to her will be coming from South Carolina, from Mm -hmm. Senator Tim Scott, who also has that sense of American optimism, more of a, a Reaganite sort of shining city on a hill kind of vision. Question is just, is there any place for that in the United States of America right now? Because looking on the Democratic side, you have by the time the next election's over an 82-year-old president. And then you look on the Republican side and you have these two very pessimistic sorts of uh, figures and the way that they're framing the situation that the country is in, in ways that normally wouldn't have worked. I mean, the the standard rule of thumb is the person who seems to be enjoying having the better time is more likely to win. Well, that will not be the case, really, with either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis. Both of them are very popular because they're taking the fight in the way that their supporters see it. I just wonder whether things have changed so permanently or relatively permanently in that direction that a figure like a Nikki Haley can't get traction, especially when people step back and say, yeah, but do you really mean it? Mm. I think that's going to be the second question. Yeah, I think the sincerity question is huge as well, because part of what's the problem for the Republican Party right now is if they want to move past Trump, which clearly Haley seems to want to, she has a record, (laughs) you know, of supporting in, in these seasons. And I think... As bad as the record of saying, I'm going to support the president because he's the nomination, I'm going to serve in the administration because I want to serve my country, as much as that might be 
a sort of point of attack from a critic. The worst point of attack is she was against him, she was for him, she was against him, she was for him. Right. Which so many right. Republican voices from Marco Rubio to Ted Cruz to various other previous members of his administration, Chris Christie, other people who may be interested in running, are all going to be running against their own record yeah. with regard to Donald Trump. I mean, he's dominated the political conversation, and I, I don't see that going away. Even if he fades, his impact on someone like Haley isn't going away. You know, I think the other thing that was interesting about that launch from a religious perspective is the prayer beforehand, which was given by John Hagee. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Nikki Haley said uh, later, I want to be John Hagee when I grow up. Uh, John Hagee, uh, very much in the prosperity gospel revivalist strain. He's the blood moon prophecy guy. And he was somebody who previously would have been really untouchable before the Trump era. You really wouldn't want to be too closely associated with him. So John McCain had to repudiate him after comments that he'd made about Catholicism and, and other things. But now, even in the candidate who's so far trying to be the most mainstream and let's get back to the way it was, there's John Hagee. Uh, right, mm -hmm. right in the middle of it. So that has also changed quite a bit. But I think in ways that people don't realize, I think everybody is always operating with a view of American Christianity that's five years behind us. Hmm. And so I, I don't think people really understand how different all of the different fragmented tribes of evangelical Christianity actually are. I would love for you to say more about that, because when you say that the view of American Christianity is five years behind us, mm -hmm. do you think that in terms of John Hagee's inclusion is a misstep on her part, or is John Hagee's inclusion a signal of where we actually are right now? I think that John Hagee's inclusion is a signal of where people think we are. So I, I think the incredible thing is that Hagee is actually willing to break with Trump. In this way, because, mm -hmm. you know, as much as we talk about how scared politicians have always been of Donald Trump, and they are, I mean, you, you have these conversations and, and all of these Republican politicians are, oh, I, I think, I think all of these things, but I can't say them publicly. It's even more so the case when you're dealing with these politico-religious figures. You think about the sorts of people that Trump was able to mainstream who would not have been mainstreamable before a Paula White or a Robert Jeffress or a John Hagee. These were these were all people that their support would have been accepted, but most people wouldn't want to be associated with some of the baggage that they bring. Donald Trump was not afraid to be associated with that. And we're kind of at a point where Everybody is sort of reading the poll numbers, which is to say you're not going to win a Republican nomination without evangelical Christian support. So where do we go to find it? And again, I think the fundamental mistake is assuming that these leaders are the ones who capture evangelical support. They reflect it. And mm -hmm. so whatever happens with the grassroots going into the 24 primaries, well, that's where this kind of leader will actually be. So the fact that John Hagee is not afraid to repudiate Donald Trump, at least by his presence, that is a significant news story. Come back to the, the beginning of this. I do wonder with where we are on the other side of COVID and even with certain things taking place like the war in Ukraine, inflation, in this sort of cloud of negativity that has dominated certainly our political conversation, but really the cultural conversation as a whole for a long time, I do wonder if the lane that Haley is trying to carve out is the right lane in terms of it being the right time where people just want to hear somebody stand up and go, you know what, it's been a hard few years, but this place is great. America's a beacon on shining beacon on a hill or, <laughs> you know, the, all those old sort of ideas about like why we love this country, why people wanted to come here, why people continue to want to come here, getting to the heart of people who want to feel like they're part of a good story. And yeah. this drumbeat being the story of our country is one of decline, which is alive at both of these polls. I think that has an expiration date. I do too. But I, I agree with you in the sense that she's a long shot's long shot, probably. Well, I mean, it's really interesting, right? Like the two candidates at the front of the Republican side are these negative 
you know, gloomy culture warriors and the front runner and presumptive nominee on the Democrat side is in the position that he's in simply because he beat the bad guy four years ago, you know? Well, I also think, though, that what's extraordinary is that President Biden refuses to go down that dystopian path very much, which Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons why people see him as a throwback. He received a lot of criticism from his left by saying, I want to work with the Republicans. I think that we can work with people of goodwill to get to the soul of America. And there was a lot of blasting him as being severely outdated with that. And yet, in many cases, that's exactly what he's done. And so it it really does help him with a certain kind of swing voter in a way that doesn't really resonate with the base on either side. And so especially in a Republican primary where what uh, somebody needs is a plurality in order to start winning these primaries, I do think the theory of the case for someone like a Nikki Haley is there is this sort of uh, kind of like the exhaustion after Jimmy Carter's crisis of confidence speak speech. And then Ronald Reagan comes and says, you know, this is a great country and our best days are ahead of us. And people loved it, that that can resonate now. I would pay attention to Tim Scott and the way that he attempts to articulate that. And I guess we'll see. I agree. Well, we will be right back. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. All right. Well, joining us now uh, to close out the show this week is Jesse Eubanks. Jesse is the founder and director of Love Thy Neighborhood. He's the host of the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast and the Enneacast. And he's the author of a new book called How We Relate, Understanding God, Yourself, and Others Through the Enneagram. Now, I've known Jesse 25 years. Is that about right? Somewhere in there? Yeah, that sounds about right. We were both very (laughs) awkward when we met, so... Probably 25 years ago. (laughs) We'll spare those stories. However, America, you may know Jesse best from an episode of the (laughs) Ali G Show. (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) In which Jesse, at maybe 21, 22 years old, was an advocate for teenage abstinence in Philadelphia. And Sasha Baron Cohen, as Ali G, had you on a panel and referred to you only as what? Virgin. <laughs> it is it is a magnificent piece of tape and I only bring it up because you texted me because a you want to humiliate me that, that that's well, there's that. Bring it up. So, there's so that. that so that everybody will be searching on YouTube uh, immediately. Uh, well no 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 it's fun. it's directly related to the book because you sent me a screenshot the first time you searched for your book on Amazon. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And and what what came up above your book in the search? Yeah, it was a picture yeah. of me on Dolly G show with uh, <laughs> with frosted blonde tips on the end of my hair. It was just the worst. It was the worst. Well, let's talk about your book, and you know, I think uh, listeners would probably be interested in the podcast as well. Those who haven't found it, and let's start with 
for those who are sort of at the very base level, somebody hears the word Enneagram and they look at you and go, what's the Enneagram? How do you answer that question? Yeah, the Enneagram is a theory of personality that is based around the idea that personality is composed of what we feel, of what we think, and what we do, and that all of us in various ways have a particular sort of algorithm of those three things. We prioritize them different. We deal with the issues that come up different. And that each of us is driven by different desires and that when one of those desires really comes to the forefront of our personality, somewhere in the mystery of nature and nurture, that desire becomes so powerful, it begins to forge our personality and we literally craft our way of seeing and being and relating around that pursuit of that desire. And so the Enneagram, at the end of the day, I say it is simply a tool to help us grow in self-awareness and understand our particular relational styles. Jesse, what would you say to people who would say the Enneagram is basically a horoscope? And so it's, it's kind of like saying that you're, you're such a Libra. That's exactly <laughs> what a Pisces would do, except with, oh, well, of course, you're an eight. You're going to be aggressive. H- how do you respond to people who have that sort of skepticism, I guess? would be the word. Sure. I get where it comes from because on its surface, you know, it sounds like pentagram. It sounds like we're just talking in numbers. It sounds sort of just silly. There are people that have tried to connect the Enneagram to horoscope sort of work. But the the reality is this, is that there's not one single person that created the Enneagram. It was a series of people that contributed to it. And a lot of these folks were really pulling both from ancient wisdom, as well as a lot that's happened in the last 50 years. I mean, you're talking folks that went to Berkeley, went to Harvard, studied personality theory for decades. So, you know, when people say it's basically just a horoscope, frankly, I experienced that predominantly as I don't want to be curious about this. And that's an easy way to just dismiss it outright. It's a convenient way to say, I'd rather not take a look at myself. And so I think it's a better invitation to say, let's be curious about this. And, you know, the more that you actually look into some of, you know, some of the origins of the Enneagram are really wonky and those do need to be addressed and contended with as Christians. But at the same time, there's a lot in there that is really, really well thought out and fascinating and based on research and not just on sort of impulsive Mm -hmm. pie in the sky ideas. And there's a flip side to that, which is there's a very informed way of sort of looking at those versions of the Enneagram, right? The sort of fact-based, you know, personality theory-based approaches to the Enneagram and the approach that's, you know, I spent $8 online, I took an Enneagram test, I'm an eight. Not only can I tell you everything about me, but <laughs> I read the whole form, so now I can tell you everything about you, right? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's it's one of those things that can become a shorthand in ways that are very helpful. You know, as a pastor, I use the Enneagram quite a bit working with with leaders or working with couples because it, it tended to sort of, I, I always think of it as like, it, used, it sort of fast forwarded the process of just discovery. Yeah. But, you know, I, I found myself after a couple of years having to caution people, what we're going to do is an introduction to this. If you really want to get into it and try to dialogue with other people about it, you need to do a little more sort of research, read some more, and be very, very hesitant of like typing the people around you and saying, oh, you're a three. So now I can tell you all these things about yourself. Yeah. There's a real temptation to sort of approach it like a BuzzFeed quiz and think (laughs) like I'm a genius and I understand all these things. And the truth is actually this. Some of the original teachers of the Enneagram in the last hundred years, they didn't want the general public to know about it because of these exact issues. They were scared that people were not going to go deep enough with it and that it was going to be used to characterize people and weaponize against people in ways that were very shallow. And so when it started spreading rapidly in the 70s and 80s, especially, I mean, a lot of those folks were very upset because they said, you know, you have no idea basically what you've just unleashed on people because people will not know how to wield this with wisdom. Well, and one of the things I think, Jesse, is that's so helpful about your book is it's about how having this insight really can help us to be other directed and to relate to other people. And I know that's one of the most helpful things for me, having this category of my wife as an Enneagram 2 helps me to understand why some of the things that might be great for me are not the way to speak to her. And so it just gives a different category. And I think it helps her to understand, okay, this is why, as an Enneagram 4, he has nostalgic playlists of melancholy themes uh, all through his Spotify. I mean, she just understands that, I think, a little bit 
better. And your book really shows that, I think, in ways that can really help people sometimes in churches where we look at one another and say, why are you acting that way? And can help us not to say, oh, you're the problem because you're a but to say, okay, how do I better communicate with somebody who hears things this way? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think about like, so one of the, you know, there were a few different touch points in my story that kind of came together right at the moment that I first encountered the Enneagram. But one of them was that my marriage was in a really bad place. And my wife, Lindsay, and I, one of our biggest issues was that we just could not for the life of us sort of understand that this other person is not behaving in the way that they are on purpose to drive us up the wall that we are literally coming at this world with different felt needs, different ways of seeing, different things that we're responding to. And one of the great gifts that came out of our work with the Enneagram was our ability to empathize with one another and to go, Mm. oh my gosh, you know, Lindsay, you know, as a type six, I mean, she's dealing with anxiety and fear in ways that just frankly, I just don't. At the same time, my wife, who would love to live in a small town and live anonymously, can't understand why I keep coming on podcasts and talking about things, you know? Mm-hmm. And so this ability- Including her. In, including <laughs> her, yeah. And so this inability, it, here's the thing, and then we do this especially, I think, in Christendom. We moralize our way of being as the morally correct way, and then we look at other people and we say, what you're doing is wrong. It's broken mm-hmm. and wrong. My way is the right way. All the time we're blind to- I'm addicted to my way of doing things. It's why I do it the way that I do it. I really prefer it. And the Enneagram begins to let us in and to see that. And I think the other thing, too, that's real fascinating in the way that people explore the Enneagram now, the Enneagram, when it was originally being developed, was this idea that how do I see? But then the bigger thing is, what are all the ways in which I'm no longer seeing because I'm mm. so fixated on my one way of, of looking at the world. And now we've kind of flipped it. People are like, I'm a type this and I'm a type that. And that's just the way it is. And that's a very reductionistic way of seeing things. When we think of Jesus inviting us into the abundant life, I do not think it means have this very small truncated view of how you relate to people. He's inviting us into this bigger, robust way of experiencing relationships. Yeah, I think the relational aspect of this is the critical piece. Very similarly to you, the Enneagram was a very, very helpful gift in our marriage. The first time I ever took it, I, I took a version of the, the like a profile of the Enneagram that gives you a score of zero to 100 on each type. And one of the types is like the loving person, compassionate, intuitive about other people's needs, um, all of that. Uh, the type two, uh, Russell, you just described. My wife came in, I think she was in the like high 80th percentile and mine came back and I was 0.2. And it was, and it was so helpful though in the context because we had somebody sort of facilitating the process with us who very quickly saw that and said, Hey, just so you know, be careful not to moralize those numbers. This is about sort of intuition not about whether or not he actually loves people, you know. And it was a real breakthrough for the two of us in like, oh, like, okay, he's not a, like, uncompassionate, terrible person at heart, you know. It's just the way most it comes out time. is very most different of most time. of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, you would know. You would know. Um, <laughs> but to talk about the book a little bit then, like, the, there's a million Enneagram books. This is a very hot topic right now. What made you feel like we needed – Another one. <laughs> Sorry, that came I know, off. seriously. That came off harsher than I meant to came off. But no, I mean, but 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 the question's real, right? You go into the bookstore and there's like a million things coming out all the time. I mean, even the day that my book came out, other Enneagram books released the same day. So there is that that question. And I think the easiest way to say it, Mike, is I wrote the Enneagram book that I wish that I had when I first came across mm-hmm. the Enneagram. I really appreciate a lot of the work that has been done around the Enneagram, but it lacked a few very essential pieces that for me, in the way that I approach life and faith, I really was longing for. And so this book hits three pieces in particular. It hits the importance of life story, the idea that the story that each of us has lived, the experiences we've had and how we interpreted those things have forged our personality. They've been so integral into who who we are. The second piece is that The Enneagram does not care about me. It has no interest in me. It is not going to love me into wholeness. And so I need someone who can. And so the second piece is Jesus. What does that look like to encounter Jesus? And in particular, what does it mean for Jesus to empathize with my deepest wounds? When an alcoholic is trying to get sober and they seek out a sponsor, the first movement of that older sponsor is to say, hey, I've been where you are. 
and here's how I got out of that situation. And in that same way, I need to know that Jesus understands my deepest pains and that he also can show me a masterful way forward and a better way of doing life. So the book explores mm-hmm. that. And then the final piece is just the gospel. You know, Keller says that the gospel is not good advice, but it's good news. And so much of the Enneagram teaching out there is like, oh, you have these vices, just go do these virtues and everything will be better. Well, as Christians, mm-hmm. that's not what we believe. We believe that we're supernaturally transformed by the person of Jesus and by his gospel. So what does that mean for my personality? I don't parent my kids the same. I approach each of them different, depending on their personality. At some level, I've got to believe that the Lord sees me, perceives me, and knows what I need, and that he's approaching me in the ways that I need. And the Enneagram begins to give me a way of perceiving, oh my gosh, all these years, the Father's been approaching me in this Mm -hmm. way that I needed, and now I can finally see why that's so good. Jesse, I was talking one time to someone who teaches the Enneagram, and someone people are peppering them with questions. And somebody said, okay, type Jesus for us. Uh, what what Enneagram type is Jesus? And he said, well, you're not supposed to do that, number one. But number two, he said, I think that because everything holds together in Christ and is integrated in Christ, and he sums up all things, that that means that every healthy, unbroken aspect of all of these different personality types are reflected in Jesus. He's sort of the center of it all. And that was his point. He's able to relate to us perfectly as somebody who has uh, been tempted in every way we have, but also who has experienced everything that we might experience in the human condition. You think that guy was right? Yeah, I do think that he was right. And I think that's one of the reasons why when we read the Gospels, Jesus is so unpredictable. You Mm -hmm. know, if you put me in a story, in a narrative— and you put me in a certain situation, at some point you begin to sort of guess how that character is going to react. Jesus is Mm. unguessable. You read something and it's just like, he's pulling from this type and this type and this type and this type. And the other thing too is I remember years ago after Rob Bell's Love Wins came out, I remember hearing Keller say we should never pit the mercy of God against the justice of God. And I think in that same notion, what we see in Jesus is we see that unlike us, that we tend to, I love this aspect of personality and I pit it Mm -hmm. against this other thing. So Mike, in the situation you're talking about where it's something inside you says that too energy is a threat to the things that you really value. Jesus was not like, like he, he held all things together. So he doesn't pit parts of himself against other things. He was whole and integrated. And so when he talks about this invitation into the abundant life, I've got to believe that that's not just sort of this hocus pocus spiritual language, you know, that we don't, but that there's a sense in which he's inviting us into an incredibly robust relational experience that we are able to step into a level of attunement and closeness and intimacy and vibrancy, and that that will require us reaching beyond our sort of default instincts and ways of being. So we, we crowdsourced a few questions on this as well, because this has been a hot topic. And it was interesting because they all essentially fell under one of three categories. One of them was, we, we've already addressed this kind of horoscope question. The other two were, one's very practical, when somebody wants to take a look at the Enneagram and, and sort of begin to understand who they are and, and how they may be wired. Where do you point them? Is there a specific test? Is, you know, do you have people sort of give you their assessments? What, what do you think is most valuable? I will tell you the one thing I do not want to steer people towards are exactly those really short, cheap online tests, you know, the freebies. I don't think that those are very helpful. The one that I recommend is I recommend a test called the WEPS. And the best place to find it, go to, over to crosspointministry.com. They have a version of that test. Mike, that's probably the one that you took back in the day, but it's it's going to give you a profile. How much of all nine of these qualities are in your personality to greater or lesser degrees? How much of it is healthy? How much of it is unhealthy? And I tell people, it's not a white blood cell count. Like You're not like mm-hmm. going in and getting your blood work done. It's going to give you areas to be curious about. You know, mm-hmm. when those numbers come back and you go, gosh, is this true of me? You know, you got to sit in that for a while. It's a journey and you can ask the people around you, do you experience me in this way? So I recommend that. And then the second piece is the Enneagram should be done in community. I think that there's a lot of ways that all of us lie to ourselves because it's very painful to see certain things about ourselves. So yeah, so I think that those two things, so I, I definitely, I encourage, do the test, do the community thing, but then finally, 
you got to go deeper than what you're going to find online. So my book is designed for that. Uh, Hopefully that can be helpful to you. If not, there are lots of others out there. The other question was, and I think this is a pretty fascinating one. Where do we find the limit of this kind of self-awareness tool? And it's something that I've noticed is that leaders, it doesn't matter what walk of life they're in, whether they're in ministry or in the marketplace, there's something about leadership. There's almost a drug-like quality to these self-awareness tests, whether it's Myers-Briggs, StrengthsFinder, the DISC profile, the Enneagram. People just absolutely love this stuff. There seems to be a limit, though, right, of what the actual tool can do versus what actual sort of helpful transformation looks like. Or people will take the test and they'll say, well, this is who I am. And it becomes a permission card to not change toxic behavior. You know, I know you do some consulting with teams and companies around some of this stuff. How do you talk to people about the Enneagram as a tool that can actually promote change rather than just sort of more noise in the world of sort of leadership development, that kind of thing? I think on two levels. I think there's the issue of self-awareness and there's the issue of other awareness. So I think that even in terms of our relationships, you know, Russ, you talked about this earlier, even with your wife, you know, recognizing sort of her two-ness and your four-ness that there's different ways of, of approaching things. So I think that there are definitely limits. We want to turn everything into a religion and a worldview. We want everything to provide us total answers, whether that's politics, whether that's a hobby, whether that's, you know, some personality profile. It's always about keeping things in their place. And the real temptation that we come across is that people want to jettison something. We go, oh, it's been abused. We should get rid of it. Well, nothing has been more abused than the Bible. And so <laughs> so if we're if we're going by that criteria, you know, we need to use some more discretion than that. So it's not about has it been abused? It's about how can I personally utilize this with wisdom? And I do think that there are limits. I think that there is a time and place where people begin to sort of look at all of reality through this lens. And the reality is that the Enneagram has limitations. It's flawed. It can only take you so far, but it can be a tremendous starting point. But it is still under the authority of scripture. We look at reality and we look at how relationships should function by the standard of Christ and by the Bible. So if we can wield the Enneagram under that authority, great. But yeah, if you're in a place where you're just like, I find myself repeatedly latching onto these things and I'm all 100% in and they have become an utter distraction from you actually learning how to go deeper in your faith with Christ and with, you know, better in relationships with others, maybe the Enneagram is not your thing right now. But again, I always say there's a lot of people that they want to draw the boundary about 100 yards back because they're scared that it could be bad. And I I would tell those people, I think you're really missing out on something that could be tremendously helpful to you. And uh, we as Christians can live with the grace knowing sometimes we're going to kind of get some things wrong. Christ has contended for that. We can be brave and courageous and step into things that might scare us a little bit. But don't hold back just because you're scared of what might happen. Be courageous, step into it. And if you find yourself in over your head, okay, back up and reevaluate. That's really great. Well, Russell and I have both been on your podcast. You've had several seasons of it now. We asked you to bring a feature of your podcast over. What did you bring for us today? Jesse. Okay, so our, our uh, podcast, the Enneacast, uh, we say that it's like a workshop, an interview, and a game show all combined. So <laughs> what we're going to do now is we're going to do the game show portion of uh, the Enneacast. So right now we're going to play a game called Your Worst Nightmare. So uh, here's, how, here's how it works. Okay, so Your Worst Nightmare, it's a real game you can find on Amazon or head over to PressmanToy.com. Okay, so Mike and Russ, here's how the game works. I'm going to select one of you at a time and then present four cards to you. You'll then write down the items that I present to you and rank those four things by how afraid of them you are. Number one being the thing that you're the most afraid of, all the way down to number four being the thing that you're the least afraid of. At the same time, the other two of us are also going to rank the order in which we believe you are afraid of those things. For everyone that we rank correctly, we get a point. Uh, If we get all four correct, we actually get five points. We're going to play three rounds at the end of the game. Whoever has the most points wins. Okay, so Mike, we're going to rank your nightmares first, then Russ, okay. and then finally me. So make sure you both have a piece of paper. All right, Mike, are you ready? Here's your four nightmares. All right. Chatty plane neighbors. The person <laughs> next to you on the plane will not shut up. Number two, karaoke. Number three, dancing. And finally, number four, overpaying. Overpaying. All right. And I know you want to rank all of these number one. (laughs) 
So this is a good point to mention that this is where you see personality begin to show up. Okay, I got him. You got him? Okay, okay, hold on. I got him. I'm reckoning. I'm reckoning. Russ, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Mike, start your least. What's the, what's the lowest? What are you least afraid of? Of the four, I'm actually least, believe it or not, I'm actually least afraid of dancing. I was one of these guys who in the late 90s got into the swing dancing thing. So Sarah and I, we have this superpower, like we'll go to a wedding, somebody puts on the stray cats, and we actually know what we're doing for five minutes. So, so that's my least. Overpaying, How did I forget that? That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Overpaying number three. But- Overplaying paying number three, karaoke number two, and man, chatty plane neighbors. Oh, goodness. That's the worst. <laughs> well, so, I got you wrong, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Russ, Russ right. did you get any of them right? Uh, I had karaoke at number one, chatty neighbors at number two, dancing at number three, and overpaying at number four. So you got yeah, zero I didn't have points. Any, I didn't have any. I didn't get any of them correct either. Yeah, I thought for you, certain you, over. You are a mystery, Mike. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your souls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so we won zero points. Uh, let's move on to round two. Round two, Russ, here you go. Here are your nightmares. Okay. Wearing other people's clothes, clowns, lawyers, and forgetting <laughs> your spouse's birthday. <laughs> okay. All right. Got it. Okay. Mike, are you ready? Yes. Okay. Uh, Russ, start with number four. What are you least afraid of? Uh, I'm least afraid of uh, other people's clothes. I got that one right. Okay. I got a point. Okay. Uh, number three? Clowns. I got that right as well. <laughs> number two? Lawyers. Baby, I'm on a roll. I got a clean sweep over here. <laughs> I, I had to sort of make a difference between generally in terms of my personality and experiences. Uh, but See, that yeah, that was my mistake. That was my mistake there. I went I went specific, and you went general. So so number one was forgetting forgetting, yeah, forgetting Maria's, Maria's birthday. birthday. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I got clowns right, so I have one point. One I do point. have a I do have a younger brother who is terrified of clowns even even now uh, i'll send him scary clown images every once in a while and he, he doesn't like it it's <laughs> so Ooh. good uh okay round three here are my nightmares math giving blood cubicles and cleaning out the garbage disposal i feel like yours are not nearly as terrifying as the other eight, but uh, I will tell yeah, you. Th- I will. Just, I will tell you this. Uh, all four of these, I chose them because every time I looked at each one of these, my anxiety rose, and so so yeah. all of these, all of these have a visceral effect on me. All right, Are you guys ready? Ready, ready. Okay, the one I'm least afraid of, though it still petrifies me every time I have to do it, is cleaning out the garbage disposal. I got it. All right, I got it. Okay, number three, math. I hate math. It, it's got it. it it's I had it number two. Uh, number two, giving blood, giving blood, which I just did an hour before I met with you all. And the previous time I did it, they had to wake me up after because I had passed out. <laughs> oh. Uh, and then finally, number Michael one, Scott. cubicles. Living, I got like that. working in a cubicle, yeah, sounds absolutely petrifying. I almost Absolutely. did. I got that one. I, I almost did the last two right, but I, I I counted myself out at the last minute. All right. So, All right. Uh, Russ, how many points you got from that one? Two. And then from the previous? I don't remember. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. I, I think you were zero. I don't for think four I got any me. of Mike's right. Did I? No, I don't so, think so. So we're yeah. we're sending two. Okay. I have three points. Three points total. And I have two. And yeah. gentlemen, I have five. It was a pleasure to come on your show and destroy you both. <laughs> no. There you go. Well, actually, uh, we do actually have one last question for you. Someone sent this one in by audio, as a matter of fact. Matt, do you have that for us? So let's just have one word to sum up your position. Let's say commitment. Virgin? Nobility. <laughs> Nobility. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Jesse. Thank you, Sasha Baron Cohen. It's a nightmare uh, that will never end. <laughs> <laughs> 
Love you, man. It's great to see you. you. Thanks for for joining us for this. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Keep it real, Virgin. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks for listening, folks. We will see you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick. It's produced by Matt Stevens. Hosted by Russell Moore and Mike Cosper. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. The show is edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.